Today on AMCDM, we are talking about all of the impeachment inquiry drama, and then I'm sitting down with Breaking Bad star Aaron Paul. We'll see you on the timeline. Bit. Morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Berg, and you were watching AM to DM. Bitch. Bit. <laughs> yeah, it's the the famous, famous Jesse Pinkman I, catchphrase. I love that you really committed to that. Well, I didn't even. I mean, I would say I could have gone 100 percent and just yelled "bitch," but I, I even. We, we work at a news organization. Exactly. Would have frightened. The I was reporters. like, let's t- we'll take it easy, right off they, the top of. They were the like, show. "We're not at Capitol Hill today. Why are you screaming?" <laughs> All right, we'll get to that. Yes, but I'll be sitting down with Aaron Paul, the star of Breaking Bad. He's got the new Breaking Bad movie, El Camino, out. So check that out later on in the show. Oh, It'll exciting. be a good one. Yeah. Welcome, Aaron. Well, here's the tweet from BuzzFeed News. Performer Mina Lioness will be credited as a songwriter on Lizzo's Truth Hurts. Her 2017 tweet inspired the song's iconic, I just took a DNA test line. And here's a tweet from Mina Lioness herself. I just took a DNA test, and turns out I'm a credited writer for the number one song on Billboard. Can I just say it's really hard to read I just took a DNA test without wanting to sing it? Because that line, it's so So iconic. iconic. And also the other line, why are men great until they have to be great? So many great zingers in there. So many, so many. And it's great to see that Lizzo is honoring the fact that this line, you know, predated that song by this person, a performer who was on Twitter. She's very active on Black Twitter. That, you know, Mina is not some, like, total unknown person. She's a person that is engaging in Twitter, going viral a lot. So it's very, it's obviously likely and true that her her little tweet did inspire Miss Lizzo and the writers around that song. So it's really amazing to see, you know, we live at a moment in which people can be credited for the IPs, the intellectual property they're creating. Yeah. Artists are saying, you know what, girl, here's a check. Enjoy. So congratulations. It's just such an interesting moment, too, because, like, who knew that we would arrive at a moment when if you had a fun catchphrase mm-hmm. on Twitter, then it ends up in someone's song and you're now, like, accredited mm-hmm. songwriter, songwriter. But it's true, like, that is someone else's original idea. For so. sure. And I want all of you out there to listen to this story and realize that what you do every day on these social media platforms has value. It is worth something. Oh. And you should consider, you know— pitching it to other things and really monetizing on this because, you know, if you don't, someone else will and then you're going to be begging to be a part of the pie. I I really (laughs) love that you brought that to, like, the positive part of this, the silver lining, which is that your, everyone's work and writing has value. Well, a That's lot of your work and writing. I thought that you were going to say that if you take someone's idea, like you can't take someone's idea. I thought that's what you were going to say. Like even if you take someone's funny joke yeah. on Twitter, and this happens all the time yes. actually with tweets, people take really funny jokes and they just like read tweet. They, they, they don't they even retweet it. it. They actually steal the idea. And it, it's just, you still can't steal somebody's yes, idea. Because that's an original so. idea. So what I'm saying is stop stealing <laughs> ideas. But also, when you create a funny original idea, consider where it can go next. What it can be. Could it be a song? Could it be a movie? Et cetera. A poem. A poem. Let's ask Saeed Jones. He, yes. you know, like, <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. What other tweets should become a song? Let us know using the hashtag aim to dm And again, it could be a movie song. Just share with us what yeah. do you think your great idea is, and we'll steal it. <laughs> Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed news reporter Addie Baird. Republicans stormed a secure area this morning, took in their cell phones, ordered pizza, and refused to leave, arguing they should be allowed to sit in on impeachment depositions. Here's another one from Addie. This is a whole disaster. Republicans ordered pizza, apparently, and are just, like, refusing to leave. Swalwell is outside the skiff and says that they will not be deterred by this, calls it, uh, by this, calls it Republican obstruction of Congress at the behest of the president. This is wild. <laughs> We're going to go live from the district as we begin our coverage on impeaching Trump. And Addie joins us now. Good morning. Hi. So first of all, not everyone may know what the skiff is. So why is it such a big deal that Republicans stormed that particular room? So the skiff is basically a secure area where members of Congress can read classified information and where they can talk about classified information. And that's why they've been holding um, these impeachment depositions there so far, so that they can talk about information that might be classified and related to the inquiry. Um, It is a huge deal that Republicans stormed that area and then a really big deal that they took their cell phones in. Um, And a lot of sort of national security experts were saying that, like, this is a huge issue. This amounts to a major national security breach. Um, And, you know, it was just really, really chaotic. um, And and people were really concerned uh, that it could that it could amount to, you know, people were concerned that it it could have been even more of a disaster than it was. And thankfully, um, you know, it seemed like it just sort of calmed down by mid-afternoon. But it was it was a definitely a breach of an area that should not be breached. Mm. Well, walk us through the day. Where were you during all of it? And when did they actually approach the room? 
Well, I was on AM to DM yesterday morning when they actually approached <laughs> the room. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. That. <laughs> that is okay. Um, but they they um, they decided to sort of like storm the room at about 9.45 yesterday morning. Um, and then they just hunkered down. Um, they ordered pizza around like 12.30 or 1, um, which was just sort of a moment for all of us. I was, I was over at the Capitol by then. And that was a moment for all of us that we were just like, what is happening today? Um, not long after that, they uh, ordered um, they ordered Chick Fil A. They brought like uh, soda in, um, and they just hunkered down until I think it was probably about two thirty when they finally came out and had to go uh, go to some votes. All right. Uh, I mean, I feel like we have so many days and so many stories when we're just like, what is happening? That's but who who were the people who were actually, who stormed the room? Um, and, and we mentioned that they kind of did this at the behest of Trump. What was his involvement in all of this? Well, so what we know now is that President Trump was aware that they were going to um, sort of hold this protest and that he was supportive. Um, this protest was led by Matt Gates, who's a congressman from Florida who loves the antics like this. Um, and a lot of other Free Freedom Caucus members joined him. Notably, um, a handful of them are actually, a handful of the, the Republicans who, who went to this protest are actually, there's about 40, um, but about a dozen of them are actually on relevant committees that are able to go into these depositions. And I reached out to all of their offices and asked them, like, why do you, why are you joining this protest? Like you are allowed in the room. And they all sort of said, you know, we think everyone should be allowed. This is an act of solidarity. Um, but it was a lot of high profile Republicans, including Jim Jordan, who is the ranking member on the oversight committee. Mm. So have any Republicans come out and protest or condemn their actions yesterday since it is kind of the most bizarre thing we may have seen this week that happened there? No, no, there, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, before the uh, protest, Lindsey Graham got asked about it and he basically said like he didn't think that it was he said something like, you know, he didn't think that it was good to resort to violence. And, and, you know, then afterwards he was like, well, it wasn't violent. I misunderstood. He was like, I thought this was going to be like Occupy Wall Street, which, you know, also wasn't violent, but that's not really the point. Um, and it was just, you know, the, really everyone kind of just moved on pretty quickly. <laughs> It seems like there was also just uh, a lot of focus <laughs> on kind of the, the colorful stuff that happened yesterday. You know, yes. you mentioned the pizza, the Chick-fil-A, all of that. But whose testimony did this actually end up stopping? Like, what are the actual serious implications? Who are, who, you know, mm -hmm. does it delay uh, the impeachment inquiry because this happened? So there honestly aren't uh, too serious of implications. Um, there was a deposition yesterday with a um, deputy assistant um, secretary of defense, um, and she ended up they they ended up not starting the deposition until about three o'clock, and it ended um, a few hours later. It didn't seem like it was particularly revelatory, um, like we talked about yesterday on the show. Bill Taylor's testimony two days ago was really, really, really valuable to members of Congress. Um, there hasn't been a ton of information about this deposition. It was pretty short. Um, it started late, but, you know, other than that, I think they're, they're kind of just moving forward. And uh, Democrats have said that they're ready to move to public hearings soon. Um, so, you know, I think that, that these these uh, kind of protests or antics or whatever you want to call it um, aren't really going to have a ton of life. Mm. All right. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Representative Greg Pence, a freshman lawmaker, uh, freshman lawmaker that is related to uh, Vice President Mike Pence was uh, part of a committee that is associated with the depositions. How is this even, you know, ethical or anything that should be allowed to be happening? Yeah, it's interesting. This was a great story and a great catch by my colleague Kadia. Um, and Pence, uh, Vice President Pence, his, his older brother sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee, which has jurisdiction um, over the current impeachment inquiry. And Kadia talked to some um, ethics ex experts who basically said that in the House, this is uh, unprecedented, but not 
crazy. Um, he's just one of, of 435 members. And the House is the House has power to impeach. And then the Senate holds a trial. And, and the experts that Kadia talked to basically said that this would be much more of an issue in the Senate where uh, senators are acting as a jury. Um, and in the House, when, when they're investigating, um, it, it was a little bit less of an issue. But it's just really fascinating. It's something that, um, you know, even those of us who are on the Hill every single day forget that Pence has a brother in Congress and Kadia's catch was really, really smart that he's able to sit in on these hearings. Um, and, you know, like, like we were saying, they're, they're private, they're, they're in the skiff. And so we don't always know what's happening. Um, but I would love to know if he's asked any questions, if he's showing up, what he's, you know, what he's, what his body language is like. I just have so many questions that, that I would love to know the answers to. <laughs> Same, same, but we got to move on to some more news. Here's a breaking tweet from the Wall Street Journal. Scoop, Trump's chief of student loan portfolio resigns, says federal loan program is fundamentally broken and calls for student debt to be canceled, a position mostly associated with the Democratic presidential candidates. How surprising is this? I only saw this this morning and I was pretty surprised. Um, it's it, like, like they said, it is a position mostly associated with 2020 Democratic candidates. But, um, you know, this is this is Trump's this is a this is a member of the Trump administration. It's it's pretty surprising and really interesting. And, and sort of we see this every once in a while with with people um, who leave the Trump administration who say, you know, I'm done. <laughs> I, I can't stand for this. Um, and, and this is, I think, one of the most remarkable cases of that. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Yamish Alcindor. Trump in 2016, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. Trump's attorney, the president could not be investigated or prosecuted as long as he is in the White House, even for someone, even for shooting someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue. This argument came in the case over his tax returns. Um, why was Trump's lawyer arguing this? The argument was basically about um the fact that, well, he was arguing that a president can't be prosecuted in office. Um, and it, it goes back to uh, the impeachment inquiry and some of the questions surrounding um, what consequences the president will face. And, you know, his argument was was really to take it to the most extreme, which is something that Trump said during the campaign, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose any voters. And, you know, his lawyer was saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he's the president. You can't do anything about it, um, which... Uh, there is debate among legal scholars about whether a president, a sitting president, can be indicted. Um, but this is quite the way to make that point. <laughs> well, damn. Yeah. It's stunning. I know. I know. Well, Addy, thank you so much for joining us again today. I hope that we're not keeping you from missing any other chaos that's happening right now. <laughs> thank you guys so much. God, I can't believe she missed that on the free Chick-fil-A. Okay, it wasn't free Chick-fil-A for <laughs> the reporters, to be clear, you I'm know. I'm kidding. Of course, those Republicans were eating homophobic <laughs> chicken. Well, anyway, moving on from that. Later on, Alex is talking to Breaking Bad star Aaron Paul. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. And I just have to say, I was still thinking about how Addie said, uh, like, she was thinking what is happening mm -hmm. yesterday, because I feel like there are so many days when that's all that I can kind of muster about whatever's happening in the, in the news cycle. I agree. And I think just imagining being there in that moment, it's this moment of like, yeah, this could happen, but it, this should never happen. Like, of course you could storm that room, but why? And of course you could order pizza, but why? And it's just always making us reimagine the possibilities of the lotus uh, in which we I mean, can all go. yeah, or whatever is going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, as I say, what a time to be alive, because that's all, that's all I got. Are we alive? I don't, I don't know. Is I don't this know. a simulation? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, level up. You tweeted. You ever just think about the fact that your pets eat the same meal every day? Huh. And you know what? They don't pay what? They don't pay rent. They, they don't, don't pay rent. Pay they don't taxes. clean up after themselves. They have Sorry. nothing to compare about. <laughs> complain about, rather. You gotta eat yeah. that kibbles and bits, girl. Yeah, same exactly. Every day. Yeah. But I also eat the sweet potatoes and variations. Wait, I also day. eat the, like, pretty much the same yeah. things every single day. So we are animals. Weird. Yeah. Well, there we go. Well, Reese, you tweet it. I don't care how hard life is or how life gets, I'm gonna crack me a joke. I actually think this is perfect for the news cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, like no matter how bad things are, we're gonna try to laugh about it a little I mean, bit. Last, so you don't cry. The last segment, the fact that the clay's being carted in <laughs> right, right. to a deposition laugh. Yeah, has exactly. Yeah. Peyton, you tweeted Only in college can you go to class and not pay attention at all, but still be proud of yourself because at least you went. 
<laughs> and I would like to give you all a PSA that this doesn't only have to apply to college. Oh. This can be work. Your job. Visiting family. The gym. Yeah, the gym for sure. <laughs> oh, God. That yeah. is definitely, I show up some days, I'm like, I'm going to give this a good 10% because the big battle was walking these blocks here. I mean, it's true. Da, da, da. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What is the last thing you attended and we're just happy you showed up? Tweet us using the hashtag AMTDM. Hmm. Usually anything that is after 7 p.m. because that is like midnight Oh, to my me. God, yeah. that is true. Yeah, you're like, I'm just happy that I'm I right. have showed, so. yes, in this new position, I show up to things. I'm like, you are welcome that I even walked through that door. Now I'm leaving. Hmm. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Bubs, you treat it. Sunny D, Sunny D tastes like someone made a bet that they could make orange juice without oranges. <sighs> that is so real, but it's so yeah. delicious. Okay, my parents wouldn't let me have... Sunny. Really? Yeah, they wouldn't let me have this when I was a kid Why? because it was not made with real actual fruit. Because it was like a, like it's like I think I want to make a cocktail out of it. Because <laughs> it's like really sweet. I like, I like where you're like I a like sunny D vodka soda moment. I would totally do that. Actually, do you know you can make? I've had a margarita that's Sunny Delight and tequila. Oh my god! Like a, yeah, yeah, that sounds like just the recipe for a hangover. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but you have so much fun in the midst of it. I mean, I'd try it. All right, ready for tweet of the day? Yes. Young hot ebony, you tweeted. No, Apple, I don't want to use that strong ass password. Damn. <laughs> strong as password, I should, I should say. I just got lost in the idea that Apple suggests, what is it called, like the suggested strong password? Yeah, like strong. Which so actually sounds like a joke and something not to be trusted at all. I have intimacy issues and trust issues, so when Apple suggests to me what I should lock something with, I'm like, no, because you could leave me one day and I'll never be able to get into that account. Also, big tech, I don't trust you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which we're going to get to in a bit with Mark Zuckerberg. So <laughs> we're gonna exactly. Well, coming up before that, Alex sits down with Breaking Bad actor Aaron Paul. More Aim to DM is up next. Here's a tweet from comedian Trevon Free. The two and a half minutes Mark Zuckerberg regretted starting Facebook to get a woman to talk to him. Let's take a look, quick look. Would I be able to run advertisements on Facebook targeting Republicans in primary saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? I mean, if you're not fact-checking political advertisements, I'm just trying to understand the, the bounds here. What's fair Congresswoman, game? I, uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I think So you probably. don't know if I'll be able to do that? I think probably. Um, do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad. And I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. Mm. Well, here's a treat from Alex Kantrowitz. Awful moment for Zuckerberg in yesterday's hearings. Speaking about the American Nazi Party, Representative Sean Kasten asked whether people running for office could spread hate speech with special privileges. Zuckerberg, quote, that depends. Joining us now to discuss is BuzzFeed News senior technology reporter Alex Kantrowitz. Good morning. Good morning. I just want to say it's great to be back here in my library. I know the books are a little different, but I've been reading <laughs> up on cryptocurrency, and I can't wait to discuss it with you. Your library I, 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 I love what you just did there. Yes. That was excellent. Well, let's get into this. Why was Zuckerberg back in front of Congress yesterday? Yeah, Congress had some questions for Zuckerberg about Libra, the Libra Project, which is Facebook's cryptocurrency initiative. Okay, so that's ostensibly what the hearing was about, but it really didn't spend too much time on cryptocurrency and went uh, pretty much on all different sorts of topics that um, you know, Facebook deals with. And why did Libra become the least interesting thing that happened yesterday for Zuckerberg? Well, I think we learned something about what happens when you put cameras in front of members of Congress. <laughs> there's, there's always a moment for grandstanding when you have Mark Zuckerberg in front of you. Um, you know, cryptocurrency can be a little bit boring, and they went for the interesting stuff. Okay, can we please talk a little bit more about uh, that video of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that went viral? Um, how did things turn out for Zuck? Not great. <laughs> um, look, I think what Rep Representative Ocasio-Cortez was doing was pointing out an inconsistency in Facebook's policy. Facebook says politicians can run ads with misinformation. It also says they can't run ads that uh, engage in voter suppression, telling people to like text to vote or go vote on a day that's uh, not the day to vote. Uh, but what I think Rep Ocasio-Cortez was telling us was that, look, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to tell people to vote on a different day to engage in voter suppression. If you're telling them that politicians voted a certain way or they're, uh, you know, interested in policies that, that they really aren't, then people might not just show up, might just uh, not show up to vote. And that's an issue. Mm. Well, we read your tweet earlier and it highlights that moment around hate speech and Nazis. And do you think Facebook truly understands the power of hate speech? And do you think they're willing to even curb it now that they're getting so much backlash? I think they, they say they do. I mean, the thing that really blew me away was that 
Mark Zuckerberg said it depends. Well, Facebook has a policy against hate speech. So why would it be so hard to just go up there and say, if it's hate speech, we're not going to allow it, but yet he couldn't do it. So, you know, Facebook's words say, say one thing on their site policies, but if Zuckerberg himself can't stand up there and say, hey, this is something we're not going to stand for on our platform, even though our policies say that we, we do, that, that say that this stuff isn't allowed, um, then it definitely is fair to question how serious Facebook is in enforcing the policy. Hmm. Now, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty from Ohio uh, apparently dragged Mark Zuckerberg uh, over diversity. What happened there? Yeah, it was kind of amazing. I mean, she asked him some fairly straightforward questions. You know, how many businesses um, that are owned by uh, minorities and women do you do business with? What's your civil rights firm? Have you read some of the uh, information that our committee has sent over to you? And Zuckerberg again and again just couldn't answer it. Uh, and she just sort of ended the questioning like fairly disturbed about you know, how ill-informed Mark Zuckerberg was about what's going on in terms of Facebook's approach to civil rights. Uh, and I think that like it showed us that Zuckerberg is really engaged on product, um, but when it comes to policy, when it comes to advertising, uh, he's less engaged. And you know, I think there's, if there's one good thing that might come from uh, something like yesterday's hearing, I think that actual, that line of question might have a, an impact on Zuckerberg. And, you know, he might say, hey, look, this is something that I'm not really involved in, but it's time for me to have a much deeper look and much deeper involvement. And if that changes, then maybe yesterday was worthwhile. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that Zuckerberg seems to have a great knowledge of product, but not the policies. But isn't that kind of contradictory as Facebook kind of reimagines the platform itself to kind of deal with these issues con con Congress people are really grilling him on? Yeah, I think he needs to change that. I mean, it's very clear that he still doesn't have a great involvement in advertising. At one point in the hearing, he needed to look back to his team to say, hey, have we implemented uh, these changes that don't allow discriminatory ad targeting? Like, how does he not know that? So I think Facebook is entering a new era. Um, I think Zuckerberg thinks his, his focus on product is important. Uh, but the truth is that if he continues to ignore advertising and he continues to ignore some of these broader policy issues, um, he's going to be in some, some deep trouble. So it's something that he needs to pay much more attention to. For sure, deep trouble and more time in front of Congress with cameras, which yeah. I don't think he wants to do. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Up next, I sit down with Breaking Bad star Aaron Paul. Stay tuned. Here's a tweet from Alexander Graham Hell. Breaking Bad had the best series finale of all time, twice. El Camino was everything I could ask for, even after being fully satisfied. Thank you, Aaron, Vince, and Brian for such a great ride over the years. Take a look. Dude, you lost? Who is it? Jesse? Who is it? I gotta get that car off the street. Here with me now is three-time Emmy Award winner and star of El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, Aaron Paul. Welcome! <laughs> Uh, thank you. I'm here and cheering. Those aren't guests. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's good to be here. Well, well I'm really excited to, to talk to you. And I actually want to start off with something that you tweeted back in September. Yeah. Um, you said, this man I am standing with, Vince Gilligan, is the reason I have a career. I would follow this man into a fire. That's how much I trust him. This man would give me, uh, gave me a chance back when nobody else would. What was your reaction when you heard from Vince about this movie? <sighs> God, you know, um, well, first of all, I was shocked. Uh, when he asked uh, my idea about possibly zipping on Pinkman again, mm. I thought he just was talking about maybe Better Call Saul or something like mm -hmm. that. And, uh, and then when he said he wanted to follow his journey post-Breaking Bad, I just, you know, a lot of emotions were, you know, started to stir up, but... Um, Really, just excitement because I yeah. just I just trust the man. Just like in that tweet, he's not going to do it for no reason. He's going to do it for a very specific reason. He, you know, he's the last person that wants to mess with the legacy that is Breaking Bad. Yeah. And so he goes, look, I just wanted to make sure that you are on board, and then uh, let me write the script, uh, and then if it's any good, we'll do it. If it's not, then mm -hmm. it won't happen. So, did, does Jesse end up where you envisioned he would end up? You know what? 
uh, when Breaking Bad ended, people would always ask me. I mean, that was the one burning question since the show ended. What happened mm-hmm. to Jesse? Where is Jesse? Mm-hmm. And um, back then, I would always say, you know, I I like to think that he made it out to Alaska, <laughs> a small town, maybe opened up a wood shop somewhere and just kind of kept his nose clean. Um, and I think that's what he's uh, he's doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Um, well, uh, uh, speaking of Jesse containing multitudes, if you will, um, he's so beloved despite all of his wrongdoings, right? Like oh. murder, selling drugs, um, et yeah. cetera. The list goes on. <laughs> he's done some pretty bad yeah. stuff. Yeah. Why do you think fans just glorify him? What about him uh, just do they love, you know, despite all of these, like, issues? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think at the very beginning, and I think this is one of the reasons why Jesse even survived throughout the show— um, I really try to give him uh, a big heart, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's what people sort of gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just a, a guy just in uh, the wrong place, desperately trying to do the right things, and mm. um, he's forced he's forced to doing some pretty bad things. Mm. Well, Breaking Bad is, the finale is regarded as just one of the uh, best finales pretty much in TV history. Um, did you have any uh, nerves or hesitation about filming El Camino and that it might cause viewers to react, uh, say, in the same way that they did to the Game of Thrones ending? Right. That's like another show that has such a dedicated yeah. Um, You know what? I mean, I'm with everyone across the globe um, that was a fan of the show. I thought Breaking Bad ended perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, from beginning to end, uh, I I think it was a pretty flawless landing. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about Vince Gilligan here, you know, he is so precious and he approaches everything with such care. And again, he wouldn't do this for no reason. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to write the script. If it's perfect, we'll do it. If not, it won't happen. And so there was no hesitation. I was like, "All right, Vince, you know, if you want to do it, let's mm-hmm. let's do this." And the fact that he wanted to direct it as well, he's such an incredible director, and this is his first film, uh, uh, directing wise. And so, I was just so excited about going on the journey with him. Mm-hmm. And there were also a lot of cameos from uh, folks who had been on the series. Have you yeah. kept in touch with all of those people in the years? Yeah, yeah. You know, we were really such a family on the show, uh, especially the you know. The, the series regulars and um, yeah, I mean, we were all so, so, so close. I mean, Brian, of course, has been my mentor throughout the years, uh, quickly became one of my close friends and now one of my best friends. And uh, we talk honestly on a daily basis, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you seem to have such a delightful friendship and your donkey picture almost broke the internet. <laughs> so how did, how did you and Brian Cranston decide to collaborate on Mezcal? Mezcal. You know what? We were having dinner actually here in New York at this place called Shuko. Best best meal of my life. Um, and we were having sushi. And he goes, is it too early to jump into another project together? And I said, you know, I and this is, you know, pre-conversations of El Camino. I go, yeah, you know, I think people are just going to see Jesse and Walt. I go, we could maybe go into business together. And he sort of, you know, he said, what sort of business? And I said, well, maybe we should go into the booze business. And he laughed. And I go, no, I'm being serious. What do you think about Mezcal? And this was over three years ago. And he's like, Mezcal, the one with the worm at the bottom of it. I'm like, no, but it's not always that yeah, way. Yeah. Um, and we ordered a couple of Mezcal uh, cocktails. And um, that's sort of when the seed was planted. And and here we are, you know, it's uh, it just launched this this year. And um, you know, traveled out to Oaxaca a bunch of times. Wow. And uh, again, we approached it the same way with this film. If we didn't find the perfect juice, we weren't mm-hmm. going to do it. Mm-hmm. Why slap our names and why do all of this work if mm-hmm. it's just okay? But it's really, really great. Um, I, I mean, I have enjoyed my fair share of tequila drinking and mezcal drinking. Uh-huh. And it is like, gives me the worst hangovers. What? Have you guys ever been like really hungover oh together? My God. How, like, how do you not now, look, drink too much you're, and get hungover you're, you're with Brian it. You're not drinking <laughs> it right. And you're not drinking the right juice, obviously. Okay. Uh, if you drink Dos Hombres, for example, on, on the rocks or with lime or whatever, you wake up feeling beautiful. So you, you and you have always beautiful. You have always woken up feeling beautiful. I presume. Oh no, 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 no! Don't get me wrong. I've had my share, many shares of of, of hangovers. What's your? Uh, do you remember your worst? Uh, do I remember my worst hangover? Uh, 
Thank God, no. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you are luckier than me. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's definitely, I'm sure it's part of me somewhere, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, you have some other work uh, happening right now. Um, part one of the final season of BoJack Horseman airs on Netflix tomorrow. Uh, heartbreaking. Um, Time called it the most important animated show since The Symptoms, The Simpsons. Um, how does it feel uh, to say goodbye to, to Todd? Uh, Todd Chavez. Um, it, it feels good, you know. Uh, it's sad to say goodbye, but we know that we are a part of something incredibly special, and uh, Netflix gave us a beautiful home for six six years, and um, and people love what we're doing. And mm-hmm. um, I'm so damn proud of that show. And uh, the final 16 episodes are just gut wrenching, of mm. course. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm excited for people to see what we've been doing. One of the first things that comes up if you search the show uh, and search Todd on Google is his coming out. Um, yeah. It's really hailed for his asexual representation. Were you yeah. surprised by the enthusiasm around that? I wasn't surprised at all. Mm. You know, I uh, I was so proud to represent that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many people came up to me or have been coming up to me since that came out. It's like, I didn't know what I was. Mm-hmm. I, you have given me like a community that I didn't even know existed, mm. which is just so heartbreaking, but also so beautiful, you know? Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, um, I think it's so nice to have a character on TV, especially on a show so powerful like BoJack that represents um, a community that should be represented. Mm. Um, you're also starring in one of my favorite shows, Westworld. Yeah, baby. Yes, yes. Yeah. I cannot wait for season three. Um, and you told The Independent that the showrunners actually told you some of the broad story arcs for the rest of the series. So yeah, do you, you want to think- know? Yeah, t- tell no. me. <laughs> <laughs> do you, so do you think fans like me will be happy? We'll be, we have a lot to be excited about. Look, I'm such a... S- psycho fan of Westworld and have been since uh, uh, it premiered and I watched it the day of, you know, every, every yeah, season. Yeah. Um, and so when they approached me to uh, come on board, I was just so excited just to sit down in front of, you know, Jonah and Lisa, mm-hmm. the creators, and then just to hear the sort of story arc of this season and then sort of just the broad strokes of where they're taking it mm-hmm. is Insane. I have to say, when I watched the uh, Comic Con trailer, there was literally a moment where I like audibly was like, <gasps> "Yeah." I saw some. Yeah, some it's of the, so cool the, that they're taking you outside of the park mm-hmm. and seeing what the world is like outside of Westworld. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool. Well, before we go. Um, your iconic catchphrase, yeah, bitch, has oh. taken on a life of its own, and then there's actually a proposed law in Boston that would make the word bitch illegal. And in response, you tweeted, I mean, come on, I Boston. know. Um, you know. What if it's in a nice way, asking for a friend? Um, <laughs> what are your feelings on this proposal? What would Jesse say about it? I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous, first of all. <laughs> there's a lot more dire right, issues right. maybe to focus on. Um, but... Come on. I mean, first of all, I've, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't call people bitch in a bad way, only right. in a nice way. And the word has, I, I claim the word as like, now it's like a reclaimed feminist word. You know, people say bitch all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? I'm very proud. I think that I had a lot to do with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you certainly did. Um, and you actually, you told TV Guide that Jesse actually wasn't supposed to say bitch in El Camino yeah. at all, right? And then you improvised <clears throat> the only time that it's said in the movie. What yeah. made you throw it in? Um, I think it was probably after the first three, maybe, maybe the third or fourth time I read the script, I realized, oh my God, there's not a bitch in here. You know, where's the bitch? Where's the bitch? Where I, is I it? called Vince. I'm like, where you didn't? You, is there a reason that you didn't have Jesse say bitch? I mean, people want. Yeah. People want the bitch. Give, give the people what they want. Yeah, and he's like, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't on purpose. He just it's like, well, I didn't think about writing the, the bitch. And so uh, I'm like, okay. And then I just thought that would that was a, a a nice place to to put it. And I didn't think about it ahead of time. I was just in the salad line making a salad. Uh, on screen, and then I just, I'm like, I'm just going to say it. Yep. And I did. And then you did and it. And they kept it, yeah. Well, listen, it has been so cool getting to talk to you. Oh, you as well. Yeah, definitely get to heed your advice next time I drink some mezcal. Okay. Tequila, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Good, good, good. Well, you can catch El Camino on Netflix now. Up next, Jenna Dewan is here. 
Oh, Jenna? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love her. Say hello. Hey, Jenna. <laughs> Here's a treat from Young Misses. Thank you, Jenna Dewan, for sharing your awesomeness. Not gonna lie, I teared up a bit. I am absolutely proud of you. Congratulations on everything, and I mean everything. And joining oh. me now is triple threat actor, dancer, and author, Jenna Dewan. Good morning. Oh, thank you, good morning. Thank you. And I wanna give you all some behind the scenes. When Jenna came on set, Aaron was leaving, and they are good yes. girlfriends. They were yeah. very excited. <laughs> we're like, hey girl. We're like, hey, what's up? <laughs> so you know, it's been a big happy family this morning here. Yes. But let's jump into your book. Congratulations again. Thank you. What, so much. Of course, of course. And what inspired you to create such a beautiful work? Uh, yeah, you know, I kind of sort of, it started as a, a different book. It started as a poetry book. And then I always, I've read since I was a kid. I used to read a book a day. I, I still love to read. Bookstores are still my favorite places to go. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to kind of come into this world, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. And this book just sort of took a life of its own. Mm. And I started with poetry, then I kind of went into um, some moving meditations and talked more about my spiritual side of who I am as a person. And then kind of some personal stories got in there and it just became a little bit of everything I love. Yeah, and it felt like a practice in vulnerability for you, vulnerability in public. And tell me, how did you decide what to share, what not to share, and what motivated you to share so much? You know, it's funny, the book to me is really a lot about like my true spirit and Mm -hmm. soul, which is like, connecting to something bigger than myself and meditations and a lot of the things that I do personally to create balance Mm -hmm. in life and finding the beauty and like a deeper connection in life and through every day that I go. And when you talk about that, of course, that you have to incorporate stories from your life. Mm -hmm. So it just sort of felt organic to add in things that I have been through, uh, challenges throughout my life, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, things that I'm also very, very into and finding that grace. Yeah, and grace for you is a way to move through difficult stuff a lot in this book. And you talk at length about disappointments you faced in Hollywood and in the business. How did you begin to learn to confront those things so head on? I started, I mean, disappointments happen for me from a very young age because being a professional dancer, Mm -hmm. it was... And being a dancer growing up, I mean, there's competitions and you don't win the competitions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then there's, oh my God, you didn't hit your triple pirouette and you're crying all night. And so there's moments of like, I've had to get a thick skin and I've had to like learn what's important in life and how to like tap into that energy. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about that. And for all challenges in life, when that comes around, you sort of you got to rely on your your strength. And you, there's never a better time to learn your strength than when you kind of have to get over some hard challenges for in life. sure and it's also it sounds like you've learned that you know you may fail at something but you got to get up yeah you keep yeah going. I'm always willing to fail and I think that's that's helped me a lot in life it's I'm never scared mm-hmm. to approach something and I can be in the moment oh my god how am I going to yeah. do this how's this going to work out but I'm I've always been kind of um ready to go for it Mm -hmm. and fail rather than be scared that I didn't listen to my heart. And people need to listen to their hearts more because, you know, it may break, but it also can come back together and allow you to have new opportunities. And you're now in a new relationship with Steve Pizzi. How did you two meet and what is one of the most, uh, your favorite things about him? Oh, gosh, how long do we have? (laughs) We can extend some time. I love talking about men. Let's do it. amazing. (laughs) I, I met him. He is an incredible performer. He was doing once on Broadway. I mean, he's like won a Tony. He's mm-hmm. incredible for this. Um, I met him briefly just because I was like, you were amazing. It was like a brief actors meet mm-hmm. other actors and say hi. And then we reconnected seven years later after, you know, I was separated. And it's just been like, um, it's uh, the biggest blessing. I always say is you never see things coming. and. Mm-hmm. Biggest blessing in my life. He's amazing. Mm. He's so caring and loving. And Girl, we all deserve yeah. that too. Yeah. We really do out there, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> well, a big line in your book is, you know, you have to set intention for things in your life for yes. them to happen. And I'd love to hear, what is the new intention you have set for this new chapter in your life? You're having a baby. You yes. have a new man. Things are changing. What are you things thinking are about? Things are changing. Ooh, intention, um, family, deep connections, mm-hmm. love, self-love. Um, yeah, I mean, Steve and I are just like, we're really excited to sort of be building and expanding this family mm-hmm. and Everly's excited and just, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm in awe a lot during the day. It's, it's a feeling of, wow, this new chapter really feels 
amazing. Yeah. So yeah. And you know, it, it's so great to hear that it does feel so amazing because it's very deserving. Yeah. But I feel as if lately the media has been so obsessed with talking about how you deal with all these things that are going on in your life. Yes. How are you doing as you deal with that whirlwind and that firestorm of questions about everything so intimate? Yeah, that's why I made wrote this <laughs> like, book. This is why this I was exists. like, that's why I had to <laughs> talk about finding balance and yeah. beauty in me every day. I mean, for, oh God, this isn't, you know, the business, mm-hmm. like I said, like I started so early on with criticism and sort of being self-critical of myself and having to learn to focus on what you love about yourself, mm-hmm. what is important for you, what the reason behind you share any message in mm-hmm. the world. So really understanding that and trusting that and doing whatever I can to sort of meditate and balance and kind of find that that beauty in life. Yes, and breathe through it all. Yeah, breathe. exactly. Breathe. Yeah. You got to remember that, y'all. Well, outside of building a family, you have a new uh, project coming out on Netflix. Yes. Soundtrack. Yes. Tell me about your character in that. Oh, uh, yes. I'm so excited for the show to come out. It's something you've probably never seen mm-hmm. before. Um, a drama with its, but it's a musical, so there'll be lots of dancing. Mm-hmm. I play uh, Child Protective Services, and oh. I am... Um, God, there's not a lot I can say because if I oh, say too us. much, it's like full-on uh, spoiler alerts and Josh Saffron will come for me. Oh, <laughs> like, so mad at me. But You'll get a phone call as you can I, He's like, you're not supposed to say what this is about. But I will say um, she's a very empathetic character. There's a lot of love involved. There's a performer aspect to her. Um, it was a really fun. It was one of the hardest mm-hmm. jobs and roles I've played. Um, but it was so fun and rewarding, and I, I'm dying for everyone to see it. I think it's going to be, people are going to go, wow, I've never seen anything like this. I'm excited to see you play a child protective agent. Yes, thank you. That's thank a big you. It was role, really girl. fun. I met, I met with somebody who, this, girl, this woman, Amy, who was amazing, and she was fascinating to learn about when you walk into these situations mm-hmm. and how you you have to really like have all your senses working at the same time. It's you're, you want to be there for the kids, but you have to sort of listen to what the, mm. is going on in the family and make some hard decisions. And um, it was fascinating. I've never played anything like it, and yeah. I was very excited. Well, that's very exciting to do. Um, and finally, before I let you go, you have, your production company is doing a new project with Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. Magic Michelle, correct? Yes, yep. What can you share there? I well, know there's some tightness. Well, it's not called that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a skit that I went on her show Based to do. Her yes, show. years yeah. ago. Um, and in the middle of the skit, she said, we need to make a movie of this. And I was like, that's okay. Sure, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> no. Whatever Ellen says. You're like, sure. sure let's and then do. lo and behold, we are. We have a deal with Warner Brothers, and we're in the middle of the script writing. It's a broad comedy uh, win the world of burlesque. Okay. And it's very funny. Is there anyone you want to reach out to to be involved in this project? There's you say burlesque, so I think many. Christina Aguilera, but I'm a gay man in America. I know. So you know, <laughs> I think of By the things. way, Christina, yes. You want to be in this movie? Please come be in our movie. That would, and share. Oh, too fun. Let's get them all. Yeah, share. Christina, Julianne was in that movie. Done. We've cast We've it. already done it. I'm getting a credit, a producer credit on this. Yes, thank yes, you yes. so much <laughs> for that. Well, thank you for being here today. It's been so lovely thank chatting you. about your book, and it is wonderful and beautiful. It's thank really you. beautiful. I mean, like, you guys should flip through this. It's thank sorry. you. So, so again, of course. Well, gracefully, you finding beauty and balance in the everyday is available now. Up next, I'm speaking to 19-year-old filmmaker Philip Newmans about his movie, Burning Cane. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm here with 19-year-old Philip Newmans, the first black American, black American director to win Tribeca's Founders Award for Best Narrative Feature and Gotham Award nominee for Breakthrough Director, which just happened. Amazing, amazing. And Philip joins me now to talk about his film, Burning Cane. So congratulations first. Incredible. Thank you so much. How are you feeling? Thank you. Uh, insane, man. You know, you know, honestly, nothing but fortunate that, you know, the film has resonated in the way that it has. So... I don't know, I'm on cloud nine right now. I, you have to, you're glowing, I can feel it, and you deserve it so much. Well, you began to work on this film while you were in high school. Explain to us how this film came about at such a young age for you. Uh, for sure, so uh, the film is really just like kind of a meditation on my upbringing, you know, trying to create, you know, a humanizing portrait of the people that I grew up around in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, and so I wrote a short script in the end of my junior year. My teacher told me he thought it could be adapted to a feature and so from then on, I just became like really, really obsessed with that mm-hmm. idea of expanding the story. And so in you know, the ensuing months, I was just churning out new drafts of the script, had all of my best friends in high school sort of as my producers who were really in the grind with me throughout the, the entire production process. And, uh, and yeah, and I guess towards the end of, uh, end of high school and the beginning of my freshman year 
in college when I submitted it all to the festivals. Then, you know, Tribeca happened mm -hmm. and they really wanted the film and it was just kind of a, I guess, a match made in heaven in a way. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what's happened, the life that the film has taken on is kind of beyond me in a way. You know? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were working on this film, you were relying on close personal connections, your friends, family, to make it happen. But New Orleans, it sounds like, also wrapped its arms around you. Tell me about how they worked on the film, or the city itself supporting you. Definitely. Um, so I went to a high school called the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, which is an arts high school dedicated to really kind of hands-on, applicable arts training. And I was in the media arts department with film as my focus. Uh, and so the resources that we had available to us, uh, so I went to a high school essentially with gear and and equipment that we otherwise would not have been able to afford, mm. you know, and those resources were essential in, in being able to make this film with the sort of production value that I wanted to be able to make it with. Um, and then I'd say for the city at large, you know, I feel like the South in general and Louisiana specifically, um, we found so much help in the sort of the community, especially when we went down to Thibodeau in terms of people you know, being willing to let us shoot in their house yeah. for free because we couldn't really pay them. And they, <laughs> you know, they, uh, I think they were, they were very, very trusting in a way that I'm not sure can be found quite in the same way anywhere else. So, mm. yeah, Louisiana was definitely supportive. And you know, as we were already talking about, you know, lots of support, family, the city, mm. and so forth. But Wendell Pierce got involved in this project. You know, yeah. we all know him from The Wire, huge actor. Mm. How did that happen? Because for a high schooler, that's quite a casting choice. Yeah. Not a choice, but an no, opportunity. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, Wendell's amazing. Um, so I was working at a beignet stand called Morning Call Coffee Stand, raising money for the film. And I was waiting on a woman named Lula Elsie, and then she I was talking to her about the film, talking to her about some of the roles in the film, and she knew Wendell. And then after I told her about the role of the pastor, she said, what do I think of Wendell Pierce playing it? And so I was kind of taken aback because I never really thought an actor of his sort of, you know, prestige and sort of acclaim uh, would even be really approachable for our production, um, but she texted him right then and there. I got his email, sent him the draft, um, sent him another draft a week later after I expanded his character and expanded his role to sort of comment on the mayoral status that pastors mm -hmm. have within those rigid Protestant communities. And then after that point, it was just like figuring out the dates and everything. And uh, yeah, shooting with Wendell was an incredibly formative experience for mm. sure. And what difference did it make having him involved in the film once you expanded it and really brought him in? Um, I think, one, it allowed me to make, like I said, that sort of like direct commentary on the, uh, the sort of mayoral status that pastors have and how they really have a major voice in mm -hmm. governing, governing the convictions of the people within their congregation, the people within their community. And I also think Wendell coming on the set, coming on the production helped mature all of us in a way mm. because I think it made us feel uh, accountable and responsible for maintaining the most professional set possible, mm. you know? And I think we were doing that anyway, but I think him coming on just kind of upped the ante for all of us in like a really, really dope way. Mm. So yeah, I mean, working with Wendell was insane and I'd love to work with him again for sure. Amazing. And you know, it sounds like you are very much a person that likes to be accountable and to keep building and work harder and harder. But why did you work so hard to do this all yourself and not go to Hollywood to get some help out there? Um, I think it's, there's a few things with that, you know. Um, this is a story that it felt like I could make then and there, one, because of, you know, the relationships that I had with my community, mm -hmm. uh, with the resources that I had through friends and through my school. Uh, and it was also a story that I knew, you know, it's, it was a direct sort of commentary and reflection on my roots and my personal upbringing. So I feel like it just felt like a personal enough story that it didn't really feel like it needed to be brought to any outside sort of parties in a way, yeah. you know, and I think maintaining my creative integrity and as much, you know, isolating my own creative voice within that whole discussion was like probably one of the most important things for me. For sure. mm, amazing. So there's a very famous person that's distributing your film right now, Ava mm. DuVernay, mm. with her production or her distribution company, Array. And how has that partnership really helped you with the film? Um, I mean, they're amazing. You know, their, their mission is entirely based on, you know, promoting the works of filmmakers of color and women of all kinds. And I feel like their, their mission is such an honorable mission. And Burning Cane is such a uniquely black Southern story that it feels kind of like a perfect harmony in a way because Burning Cane is such a grassroots production mm -hmm. and Array is such a grassroots distributor that's really about getting the word out to the people at a very grassroots level. You know, I think it was, it's, it's kind of a, a match made in heaven in a way also, you know. Uh, so yeah, feeling mad fortunate about Array. Um. Love Ava, they're all great. Yeah, and you and Ava have a relationship now. You speak to her quite often. I heard you were really nervous at first, but now y'all are like good girlfriends, hang out, chat. 
What do y'all talk about when y'all are on the phone? Uh, I think the biggest thing I go to Ava about is just advice on things that I know for sure she's just, she knows way better than me. I think one of those things was also like, especially when it came to like marketing and sort of detaching myself from some of the material and allowing allowing people to really do their job because I've been so neurotic about every aspect of the film for so long, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it was just, it, it, it meant a lot for me to hear from her to just, you know, I guess in a way, sort of take a breath, sort of recognize that there are people who are dedicated to really helping promote this work mm -hmm. and then taking that in and really just moving forward with that, with that sort of trust in mind. So Ava's been amazing. I mean, she's a real, she's one of the sweetest people I've ever met, for amazing. sure. Amazing. So this film has gotten you, you know, connected to Wendell, Ava, so many incredible people. Mm -hmm. You're getting all the awards, all the nominations. But what's next for you? What do you want to do next and what's getting you excited to wake up in the morning? Ooh, it's a good question. Uh, for me, um, I'm sort of focused really more than anything else on my next narrative feature. Uh, and it's about the New Orleans chapter of the Black Panthers in 1970. And a lot of people didn't even know New Orleans had a chapter, but when I found out early in high school, I got in touch with those Panthers and eventually became friends with them. And so I'm like really excited, one, to expand their story, to create a humanizing portrait of them, uh, and then also sort of tackle their story, I think, from, from, from a nuanced lens, knowing that they were these you know, incredibly progressive community revolutionaries, mm -hmm. but they were also young people, 13 to 23, year old, 23 years old. You know, that's what so the age range that comprised the New Orleans chapter. Um, and they were humans. You know, they were making, sometimes you know, they had you know, some reckless behavior, typical yeah. of youth, you know, stuff like that, that shows all the work that they were doing in the community, but also highlights how human they mm -hmm. can really be. You know, and that's what that film is all about. You know, just highlighting the communal nature within that party uh, within that chapter uh, in New Orleans. Amazing. Well, I am very excited about that, and I know you're at the very beginning stages, so keep us in the loop on where you end up, but congrats again on so much of the success that's coming uh, for you and Burning Kane. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. Well, Burning Kane is out in limited the the theatrical release. God, I can't talk. I'm so excited. <laughs> and we'll be streaming on Netflix on November 6th, but up next, more AM to DM. Welcome back. Um, what a day of such fun interviews. Amazing. Yeah, everyone. We had range again. Dynamic. We did. We did, indeed. So much. And also so proud of that young legend, Mr. Humans. Oh, yeah. Like, like, incredible. At 19, I was like drinking vodka water thinking it didn't have calories. And he's creating <laughs> theatrical work. It's really amazing. Well, when you put it like that. I'm just showing you. And look, I grew up. Things changed. But, you know, you can Anyway, I'm going to let that go. My mom's learning a lot about me right now. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, let's get to these streets. <laughs> yes, well, following our conversation with Alex Krantrowitz, Princess Leia tweeted, I followed Alex Krantrowitz immediately after the first time he was on AIM to DM with that glorious library. I, I had huge library envy. No regrets either. Glad to see he's back at it again. <laughs> so funny. What a background. I didn't realize that this was such a cult. I didn't, I didn't realize that it was either until today. And the other day he was in the control room. Yeah. In the control room, and then you know, because our control room looks like that. Yeah, took it, took it to the took it to the library today. Well, thank you to our guests, Addie Baird, Alex Kantrowitz, Philip Humans, Jenna Dewan, and Aaron Paul. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. It's gonna be Friday. Oh my it's God. gonna be Friday.